Let's take a look together at the section, and then we'll come back and pray and break it down. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Paul writes, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. 1 Corinthians 8, 2. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble... I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Well, Father, as we consider your word, we do need to understand the historical context of what Paul's talking about, and we will delve into that. But one of the things that jumps out right away is that knowledge can really puff us up. We can think that we've arrived. We can even believe that our theology can drive us to decisions that may not be good for others. And we could have the right theology, but misapply it. And so I, I pray that we would have soft and pliable hearts. I pray that we would realize that we don't know everything we think we know. And the Corinthians had become proud in their knowledge, and they were a relatively young church, and it would seem that they were even challenging the Apostle Paul on their theological positions. Lord, we know that knowledge can puff us up, but love will build us and others up. May we be known by our love. May we do all things in love. May you help us, Lord, to be people who are building others up and not tearing them down, not making people feel small or foolish, but rather We'd be in the building up business, and I pray that today would accomplish that purpose. For your glory, in Jesus' name I pray, and all God's people said, amen. Now you'll notice at the beginning of chapter 8, verse 1, the subject is introduced now, 8.1, concerning things sacrificed to idols. So there you have the subject that will actually encompass the next three chapters. So uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 
delve into this subject of what we might consider idol food or food that's been sacrificed to idols. Now this may seem a little bit bizarre to some of you, but in the ancient world when uh, there were all these pagan temples and all these opportunities to honor gods and goddesses of plenty, they were everywhere. In fact, when the Apostle Paul went to Athens, Greece, he passed through a place called the Agora or the marketplace. This would be kind of an ancient shopping center or mall. And when he passed through there, scholars believe that Paul encountered 3,000 altars to various gods and goddesses. And he even found an altar to the unknown God. <laughs> and scholars believe that maybe they had that there just in case they had missed one, as though 3,000 gods and goddesses were not enough, right? But just in case they missed one, they had one to the unknown God. And Paul used that. But, but when Paul was going through the city in Acts 17, it says that Paul was annoyed, basically. He was jealous for God because he saw the city of Athens in a forest of idols or literally swimming under idols or literally drowning under the idols. And there are people in other parts of the world that have imbibed the idea that there are perhaps millions, even billions of gods and goddesses that have to be appeased and sacrifices often were given to these gods so that good could come to an individual life or a community. And it got so bad in the ancient world that the ancient world would sacrifice even sometimes their own children to these gods to try to get fertility blessings. And Israel was warned. God said to Israel, I do not want you to duplicate the detestable practices of those nations. In fact, that's why I'm driving them out of the land and giving the land to you. Do not learn their ways. Do not imitate their ways. But idolatry is a very contemporary issue, and you're going to see why in a moment. And these gods and goddesses, what they would do is they would sacrifice an animal to them, and they, they believed that somehow in doing that, they would have favor from the god. People lived in fear. They lived in fear of ele elemental spirits and what these gods and goddesses might do to them or withhold from them. So people in the ancient world were very superstitious. Well, Paul came into Corinth and he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. He preached the fact that there's only one true and living God and people turn from idols to the living God. Praise the Lord. But even though they had, they still had to deal with a culture that was still immersed in all of this stuff and with multiple temples in Corinth there was an ever-present temptation to kind of re-embrace that lifestyle. In fact, in the ancient Greek and Roman world, there were guilds or clubs. They were very popular, and they were often connected, these guilds or clubs, with a deity. People in the business world might receive an invitation to an event that occurred at a pagan temple or a room associated with that temple. Several inf invitations from the ancient world have been discovered where the God is beckoning guests to come and celebrate at the temple or to commemorate uh, events like weddings, birthdays, rites of passage ceremonies or parties, election parties, and even funerals. Others were overtly cultic feasts, for example, celebrating the God's birthday. People from lower classes knew that meat almost exclusively 
uh, would be available to them at these particular events. And if you were in lower in a lower class, you might not even have access to meat, or indeed it was somewhat of a delicacy where the rich would have access to it more often. Maybe the only way that you would have access to meat is if you went to one of these kind of celebrations. And so the Corinthian church had all these people who had come out of this scene, but there were business relationships. And in fact, if you got an invitation to one of these events, and let's say that people in your guild or your club or your business had invited you, and you said no, you might now hurt your business or you might hurt your social standing. So there was a lot of pressure in the Corinthian culture to kind of compromise and go back to these places. And they would say something like this, well, now that we know that there's only one true and living God and now we know that an idol is really nothing in the world, we can go back. But we can go back with our Christian knowledge and they might say something like this. Uh, this is what Leon Morris shared. You know, what does it matter if I eat a meal before a block of wood or a hunk of stone? Since I know that thing's nothing anyway, can I just do that with my knowledge? And Paul's going to say no. It's not as simple as that. Now let me just pause for a second. And for those of you who have studied this chapter, let me tell you that there's a couple major views. There's a traditional view that sees 1 Corinthians 8 kind of like a parallel to Romans 14. And that essentially 1 Corinthians 8 is just simply uh, another argument about matters of opinion. You know, what you eat, what you drink, what you wear, days of worship. And so, so some believe that it's just a parallel chapter to Romans 14. But I would argue that th that's not quite accurate. I believe that 1 Corinthians 8 is more than just matters of opinion. I believe actually 1 Corinthians 8 is a dire warning to a group of first century Christians who believe it's okay to toy again with paganism, idolatry, and potentially even demonic activity. And I'm going to show you why in a moment. And I'm going to ask you to put your thinking cap on as a Christian in a modern uh, culture and ask yourself this question. What would be the modern application for a Christian who knows Christ, has been delivered by Christ, knows there's only one true and living God, but then goes back to the world to toy with it. Now, the Corinthians had made a theological decision. They believed their theology was on firm footing. So they believed they were justified in going back to the pagan temples because of their theology. But friends, you can have right theology and misapply it. You can have the right theology and believe that you've arrived, but you could be wrong in the way that you are living out your faith. And there are a lot of people, you know, have you heard the old saying that a certain person has just enough knowledge to be dangerous? Well, I think that's what was going on with the Corinthians. They thought that they had arrived, and there is evidence here reading between the lines, that they are actually having a theological debate with the Apostle Paul and challenging him that he's wrong and they're right. If you are having arguments with your Bible and, and saying to God, I think I'm right, I'm not sure you got it right on this one, Lord. I've been walking with you for five years now. You may want to check yourself. And that's what was going on with the Corinthians. In fact, 
verse 1 in the NIV says, Now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. You know, you, you get some knowledge as a Christian, and maybe you think, oh man, I, I know how many of you have memorized the books of the Bible in order? Man, I know Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you, you can start rattling the, I, I even know the song. Wow. And, and you can, maybe you've studied a book of the Bible for a while, and you feel like, oh, I've arrived, and I've got a good understanding of this book. I've had theological positions that I had as a young Christian. I've had to rethink some of them over the years, because sometimes we only look at one point of view, or we hear one pastor talk about a subject, and then we hear another perspective, and we go, hmm, that sounds plausible as well. So here's where the Corinthians were getting themselves in trouble. And I think there's something else here that we need to see. I think they were using their theology, standing on their theology, to justify their compromise. You see, if I started to say no to the invitations from the guilds or the clubs to these temples, it could cost me financially. It could cost my social standing. And so if I had a theological reason to justify my actions, then I don't have to give up anything. But if I can't justify my actions theologically, now all of a sudden it might cost me something in the culture. I might have to make some hard decisions or draw some firm boundaries that maybe I didn't draw before in terms of what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. And that's where your Christian life gets difficult. When you have to decide about a hard boundary that actually might cost you something in terms of a social setting or even a financial consideration. This is, this is hard stuff, but this is where Paul is going. Now, I said the, the next three chapters deal with this. Flip over to chapter 10. Let me show you how Paul develops this, and we'll just touch on this. He says these things. Now, 1 Corinthians 10, 6 says, now, he's using Israel as an example. These things, 10, 6, happen as examples for us that we should not crave evil things all, as they also craved. And do not be, what's your Bible say? Idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Therefore, my beloved, flee from what? Idolatry, it sounds like it's still a current issue for New Testament Christians. Go down for the sake of time to verse 19. What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to uh, idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, that's non-believers, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? Do you notice that Paul is saying that even though an idol, back to chapter 8, is nothing in the world, demons, and there is a spirit world that the Bible says is real, demons somehow use idols or false religion to mess with people. 
And when Israel was opening up themselves to demonic activity and idolatry of the surrounding nations, they opened themselves up to demonic activity. I want to pause here for a second and say to you, just because you're a Christian does not mean if you open the door to demonic activity. Let me give you an example. If you're a Christian and let's say somebody invited you to a seance and you say, oh, I'm going to go because this, this stuff is hogwash anyway or I don't believe it. And let's say that you go to that. Well, all of a sudden, what you've done is you've opened yourself up to a place where people are actually calling into the spirit world, but they're, if something answers, it's potentially demonic. And I don't know what the Lord's going to do with you in that kind of situation, but I'll say this to you. If you mess with it, look out, because the Lord might teach you some really hard lessons right there. And you can see that this is not, this chapter and these three chapters are not simply about what are you going to eat, what are you going to drink, what are you going to wear. Some people think they can drink wine, some people say no, some people eat meat, some people don't, some people eat vegetables only. This is not a matter of opinion section. This is about Paul saying to a group of people, the decision that you have made is based upon a knowledge that I'm going to tell you is off. You think you get it? Paul would say, you don't get it. You think that this is about your individual rights? Paul would argue, no, it's not. This is something much more serious. And I want to show you something that the Bible says about idols. It's found in Ezekiel 14. All right, so it's kind of like past the halfway point of the Old Testament. If you don't want to turn there, don't worry about it. This is Ezekiel 14, and this is regarding idols. This is what God says to Israel regarding idols. Ezekiel 14.3. As you turn, let me just explain what an idol is. An idol is something opposed to the true and living God. The Bible says it is lifeless and dumb. For Jews, idols and pagan gods were identical. The term connoted for both Jews and most Christians something detestable that is an idol. And Ezekiel is going to tell us a little bit more about what idols are and do. Ezekiel 14, look at verse 3. Shane's trying to get rid of the buzz. Thank you, Shane. Son of man, these men, Ezekiel 14, 3, have set up their idols, where? In their hearts. And have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. Should I be consulted by them at all? Therefore, speak to them and tell them, God's saying to Ezekiel, tell the people of Israel, tell the leaders. Thus says the Lord God, any man of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity. And then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will be brought to give him an answer in the matter in view of the multitude of his idols in order to lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are, notice what the Bible says, estranged from me through their idols. Idols will ultimately estrange you from God. What's an idol? Apparently an idol is a matter of the heart. It's not just a statue or a block of wood or a stone. It's something that gets erected in your heart that potentially either hurts your relationship with God 
or can estrange you from God. An idol is something that you elevate above the living God or try to worship alongside the living God. I think it was John Calvin who said, the heart of man is a perpetual idol-making factory. Just when we think we may not have an idol in our life, we can look at something and say, man, that, I have actually elevated that above God. And we can make an idol out of anything. In fact, I'd submit to you, some people, rather than being in church this morning, are waxing their idol. Whoa, we're going to go out for a drive today. Now, there's nothing wrong with waxing your car or your motorcycle. Just don't do it between the hours of 8 and noon on Sundays, right? And if you find yourself bowing down before that cherry red machine in your driveway, then we could offer counseling to you, okay? Just call the church office because there is an issue going on. You see, idolatry is a matter of the heart. Now, I'm going to show you one more. It's in the book of Numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So the first five books go to Numbers 25. Here's what happened with Israel. Israel was constantly being tempted by this to give in to the idols around them. Numbers 25. <clears throat> this is a story that Paul will reference in a couple chapters from now, but <clears throat> here's what it says. Numbers 25.1. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people, Numbers 25, 1, began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, Numbers 25, 2. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. And so Israel joined themselves to Baal Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. I could show you many sections, and that's just one of them, where Israel did this, Solomon did this, to appease his many wives. Back to 1 Corinthians 8. He made high places, he burned incense to these false gods. And the Bible says that God was angry with Solomon. Why? Because how dumb is it to know the true and the living God, to know his power, his majesty, to taste and see that the Lord is good, and then go back to something that is man-made and potentially even demonic. In the Old Testament, you know, there's, there's these ideas that the people would craft an idol out of their own hands. They would make it out of wood or stone, and they'd, they'd put it up on the table and make sure that it didn't fall over. All right? They'd, they'd make sure their God didn't totter. You okay? You good? You good? Okay, good. If you have to make sure your God is stable, you might want to get a different God. Amen? And there's even the, the story of, what is it, Dagon who falls before the ark and he gets all smashed to smithereens and the, the gods, uh, the, the servants of the gods, the priest of the false god Dagon come in with gorilla glue and they try to glue him back together. <laughs> Hold on, put a little bit more there on his arm. He'll be all right. <laughs> Look, you, you might want to reconsider what you're worshiping if you have to use Gorilla Glue for your God. This is what was happening. It seems so obvious to the true and living God that his people should not be doing this, but they did. 
And the Corinthians were kind of repeating the old mistakes. They were becoming arrogant. They thought that their theological position justified their actions. And in one way they were right, but in another way they were wrong. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. I can claim to have all the knowledge in the world, but if I don't operate in love, then Paul says, I'm nothing. The key is not to have a big head, but a big heart. The key is not to think that just because you know something or have wrestled with it a little bit that you've arrived. If anyone, 1 Corinthians 8, 2, supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. How long have you been studying the Bible? How much knowledge do you have of the scriptures right now? I've been studying the Bible for the last 30 years and teaching it for the last about 25 and I feel that many times I've just tapped the surface of what's there. How much knowledge do you have of the universe right now? You know, when you think about the human mind, when you think about how much time we get on the planet, for us to be proud, for us to think that we've, we're all that, is a dangerous place to be. And the Corinthians had become indeed inflated. They supposed that they knew enough about this subject to be in some sort of debate with the Apostle Paul. If you look at 7, 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 1, some scholars believe that they wrote, uh, this, uh, they wrote about this subject to Paul, now concerning the things about which you wrote. <clears throat> so it's possible that it came up there, but we're not certain. It could be just the ne next subject that Paul needs, knows he needs to address, or it could be, and this is what some scholars believe, an ongoing debate that Paul's having with the Corinthians about what they're doing and how they're living their life. Do you really have right knowledge on this one? Biblical knowledge, says one writer, must be informed by faith and directed by love. One writer says, love is the mortar between the bricks of the Christian building. A know-it-all attitude, says Warren Wiersbe, is only evidence of ignorance. The person who really knows the truth is only too conscious of how much he does not know. Knowledge here on earth is at best incomplete. Now we see dimly in a mirror, then face to face. Furthermore, says Wearsby, it is one thing to know doctrine and quite something else to know God. You know, there are people in theological uh, seminaries now bankrupt who deny the virgin birth, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the, the deity of Christ, who teach in theological circles, know the original language, know the historical context, have done a ton of research on manuscript evidence, and they don't know God. They know information, but they don't know God. And the Corinthian church was allowing their pride to puff them up. Let me just say this. This is something I wrote in my notes. I, I'll say it to myself. If you're at a point where all you can do is correct and criticize, and you can't receive correction, or worse yet, you don't think you need it, 
you are in a dangerous spot. Let me say it one more time. If you're at a point where all you can do is correct and criticize others, and you can't receive correction, or worse yet, you don't think you need it, you're in a dangerous spot. And so Paul says, if anyone loves God, he is known by him. You see, the issue is, do you love God? It's not how much information do you have about God. It's do you love him? Because if you love God, then you will love his people. If you love God, then the love of God will flow out through your life. And I think this was, is what Paul is saying. He's saying the crucial matter is love. If anyone loves God, implicit in the, question, in the verses, do you? Do I? If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar, says 1 John. And he's in darkness. We can say all day long, Lord, I love you, I love you, but if we can't even love the people next to us, how can we say that? So the Apostle Paul is challenging the Corinthians. You see, if you love God, then he knows you and you know him. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, The Lord knows those who are his. And so we are called to walk in love. Think about the apostles. They were bickering about which of them was going to be the greatest. They were asking for the special spots. You know, they even got their mom to come and ask Jesus, Can my son sit here and there when you come into your kingdom? Right hand, left hand. Well, what about so-and-so? Well, you know, he'll have a spot somewhere. I just want to make sure I have the best seat, right? And Jesus said, no, that's not the way it's going to be with you. The leaders of the Gentiles lorded over one another, but not so with you. For the greatest among you shall be what? Servant of all. You don't understand why I came, apparently. I didn't came to come to destroy men's lives. I came to save them. I am love in action. I am walking around to show you what love is. And people will know that you belong to me because of your love one for another. If we were to default to anything, brothers and sisters, if we were going to default to anything and say, hey, I'm going to err on this side it should be the side of love. You see, love is not arrogant. It's not boastful. It's not self-seeking. Love does not make it all about its rights. Love doesn't say, I have every right to eat that steak in that temple because theologically, I believe I'm correct. At the expense of an argument with the Apostle Paul and other brothers and sisters who may be wounded by your actions, yes, And they dug their heels in. And so Paul has to correct them. Some of the lines in these uh, sections may come from them. Look at verse 4, chapter 8. I think for this morning we're only going to go to verse 6. We'll see how we do. <laughs> and all God's people said, yeah, we already know where this is going. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, back to our subject, 
We know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. Now, we know there is no such thing as an idol in the world may be their phrase. And certainly, they would have learned this from Paul. Because Paul, even when he's preaching in the book of Acts, they tell a group of people to turn from these lifeless idols to the living God. So they might say, we're correct. An idol's nothing. Have you ever been somewhere and maybe you're, uh, we, were at a stay, we were staying at a place down by the beach, we had rented it, and there was a little Buddha statue in this little garden. And I went, oh, there's a Buddha. <laughs> what should I do? Should I, should I move the Buddha to the other side of the wall? It wasn't my home, but I did. I, I threw it. No, I'm just kidding. I, <laughs> no, it didn't freak me out. I know what the thing is, right? But I didn't go and eat my barbecue before it either. <laughs> right? Yeah, we, we can realize uh, that's just a statue. Somebody produced that. Somebody made that. There, there's no spirit or entity potentially in that. Okay. But what that represents for some people is precisely that. Have you ever seen some documentaries where people go up to statues and they kiss them or they genuflect before them or they kneel before them? In other parts of the world, these things are very real. And people, people, you know, put a lot of stock in them. Of course it's true, an idol is nothing. There's no such thing as an idol in this sense. But in another sense, there are people who believe that there's an actual deity behind them. And remember, you're dealing with a culture where they were steeped in this kind of stuff. This was everyday affair for them. This is what they believed. New King James, therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and there is no God but one. Would you all mark that? There is only one God. All other gods, small g, are false. They're idols. But does the God of the Bible acknowledge the reality of idols? Yes. The first two of the top ten commandments do apply. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other, what? Gods before me. Now is the God of the Bible saying that there's other deities that he knows about who live on a different street than him? No, no. He's acknowledging that there's false gods in the nations. The second commandment, do not make an idol and don't bow down to it. Why would God say that as the first two commandments? Because the Lord knows that idols are more than a matter of a physical object. They're a matter of the heart and potentially a channel for the enemy. There's one God. And one mediator between God and man, that is the man, Christ Jesus. There is no God but one. This is a creedal statement. And this is a reflection of the uh, Shema, the Hebrew Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one God. 
But the enemy of our souls, Satan, is called the God, small g, of this age. And he masquerades himself as an angel of light. And what does he do? He seeks someone to devour. Please hear this. The enemy for a long time has used false religion to lead people astray. It's his business. He's in the counterfeiting business. And this is what most modern believers don't understand about the spiritual battle. Is that the enemy of our souls is a counterfeiter. He uses religion to lead people astray. And that is the concern as the Bible unfolds. For even if there are so-called gods, note their unreality, their so-called gods, small g, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Now, have you ever interacted with a person who's a, a member of a cultic movement? And they'll say, well, I don't believe Jesus is God, the true God, but he's maybe another type of God. Look, there's only two categories. There's the true God, and every other God has to be then by definition what? False. This is eternal life, says Jesus in John 17, 3, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. If there's only one true God, according to Jesus, then all other gods are, by definition, what? False. You only have two categories. If there's only one true God, then there's only one. And then anything else that claims to be a God is false, by definition. And so, you cannot, if you're debating, for example, with a Jehovah's Witness, and they say, well, Jesus isn't the true almighty God, he's a second lesser God. Wait a minute, my friend. With all due respect, there's only one true God. Either Jesus is the true God, since there's only one, or he's not. You only have a category for one true God, and every other God can't be the true God. You see, there we are at an impasse. And that's where then they try to get slippery with their uh, view of the Bible. Now, what is Paul saying? Is he acknowledging many gods and many lords? Yes, but in the same sense that God did in the Ten Commandments. There are many false gods and many false lords. They were all over the landscape at this time. Turn uh, one book, two books forward to Galatians 4. Galatians 4. Look at verse 4. Galatians 4, 4. When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, Galatians 4, 6, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then, then an heir through God. However, at that time when you did not know God, the true God, 
you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. You see, there's only one true God by nature. But now that you have come to know God, or the true God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You see, this was an issue in multiple churches, back to 1 Corinthians 8, where people were being drawn back to these old ways, these old places. And so let's look at the final verse for this morning. It's 1 Corinthians 8, 6, and I want to park here for a moment. It says, yet for us, in contrast to the pagan world with many lords and many gods, yet for us, the us there is Christians, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. This is one of the strongest uh, deity passage, passages, what they scholars call Christological monotheism. I'm sorry for the big phrase, but it simply means this is pointing to the fact that Christ is the one God. Now some of you are going, but how? Because it says the Father and the Son. Here's where we have the triune nature of the Godhead. Notice that this also sounds similar to the Hebrew Shema. Listen to it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Every time Jesus Christ is called Lord in your Bible, essentially he is being called God. This, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, you could write in your margin Deuteronomy 6, 4, because to call Jesus the one Lord is to parrot or shadow the Hebrew Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one Lord Jesus Christ is God the Son. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. When you call upon the name of the Lord, you are calling upon the God of the Bible. Jesus Christ is God. And do you know that the biggest single debate throughout the years of church history has been just right here? Is Jesus truly God? Is he God in human flesh? Does he have the right to forgive sins? Does he have the right to call people to repentance? Why does the Christian church, you may, you may think this, maybe this is crossed through your mind, why does the Christian church put so much emphasis on Jesus, Jesus, Jesus? Because Jesus is God. And I gave you a rhyme several weeks ago, he's God in a bod. It's true. Because in Jesus dwells the fullness of deity in bodily form, Colossians 2.9. Isn't it interesting how many times people in our culture take his name and bring it down to a level where they want to express disgust? The name above all names 
that every knee will bow before and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. How many times a day in our world do you think his name is taken in vain? In fact, I, I'm sad to say that in Jewish circles, in some unbelieving Jewish circles, his name to them is a joke. A byword. Something to laugh at. And yet, in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Paul says, from Jesus Christ, you have the Father, there in the first part of 6, from whom are all things, that is speaking of creation, the universe, and the one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are also all things. Who made all things? God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in Isaiah 44, 24, a verse I've pointed out to you in the past, when God stretched out the heavens, he said he did it all by himself. He did it all alone. Therefore, Jesus has to be God, because in John 1, it says that by him were made all things, and apart from him, not one thing that was, that was made was made. And Colossians 1 says, in him all things hold together. Do you know who's holding the universe together right now? His name is Jesus. He's the living Lord of the universe. And in fact, he says in John 5, all judgment has been given to the Son. If you have the Son, you have life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. And some of the Corinthian believers were dabbling back in a world that was denying Jesus as Lord and God. They were toying with stuff. They were messing with stuff that they shouldn't be messing with. And it had the potential to cost them greatly. I just want to pause here and just ask you, is this the Jesus, is this the Lord that you know? This is who he is. And whenever I ponder his beauty and majesty and I watch him in the Gospels heal somebody or pour his grace out in a situation or call to the other side of the grave and say, Lazarus, come forth! And Lazarus comes out in his grave clothes and Jesus says, all right, Get the grave clothes off him and give him something to eat. I love that. Immediately, food. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> Jesus. Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. Jesus, Jesus, you conquer fear. This is the one who says, in my father's house, there are many dwelling places if it weren't so, I, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. This is the one who was treated on the cross as though he had committed all of your sins and my sins. God, Emmanuel, came to save us. This is Jesus. Would you bow with me? Father, we thank you so much that the majesty of Christ is on display really in the entire Bible. And we have one God, 
one Lord, from whom are all things. Jesus, you made everything. You made the stars and you call them by name. You made the plants and animals, sea creatures, the oceans. You fine-tuned the universe, the earth for life. It is amazing to realize who you are. And you have chosen a bride, and the bride is your church. And you call us to yourself. And the Bible says we love you because you first loved us. It's such an amazing love. We have such a majestic Lord and such an amazing love. Just keep your heart and head bowed. If you've let maybe some idols into your heart, maybe some things that have pushed you away, Maybe some compromises that you made. Maybe you even felt like, man, I'm on good theological ground here, but maybe it was misapplied or you didn't get the full picture. Maybe there was a compromise along the way that compromised something in your walk, your marriage, your family. Now's the time to get right. Our God is so good. He calls us back home constantly. He calls us back to our first love. And Lord, thank you that you're so patient. And if you need to return to your first love today, maybe there's been things that have gotten in the way. It's something like this. Lord Jesus, pray it if it's you. Forgive me for allowing idols into my life. I want to turn from those things and turn back to you. If you've not met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, today can be your day of salvation. He can rescue you from sin and death. But you must have a moment when you say, I believe that you are the true and living God. I believe you died on the cross, and if it's you and you've never settled this before, don't let the moment pass you by. I believe that you're the true and living God. I believe you died on that cross for me. Pray it if it's you. I believe you rose from the dead, proving that you're God, and I trust you. Lead my life, lead my family, my decisions. Help me to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, for this precious family of believers, who desires to be people of truth and to build up others in love and truth. May you bless them. May you keep them. May your beautiful face shine upon them. May you give them shalom, give them peace, give them strength as they walk out what you have worked into them. We love you. We praise you for your word. May it continue to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path.